This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, Facebook, we already had some news this week about the FTC preparing a possible antitrust suit against it, according to those in the know. Well, this week's cover story happens to be about Facebook and how employees of the social media uh, giant really kind of fear that its founder and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, and his commitment to free speech is more about protecting President Trump than the company's ideals. Bloomberg News technology reporter and author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram, Sarah Fryer, joining us on the phone in San Francisco, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone in Massachusetts. Amazing story and an amazing cover. Thank you so much. And do we have Joel, yeah, too? I, I think- Oh, I think it's, uh, it's re- oh, yeah, Joel, you're Sarah there. Do the talking. Oh, okay. <laughs> let Sarah do the talking. <laughs> Come on in, Sarah. Hey, you know, listen, it's a virtual world. Technology, it's a little crazy. So go ahead, uh, Sarah. Take away. It is an amazing story. I, I think it's just a compilation of all the things that my colleague Kurt Wagner and I have been hearing over the past few months and years about how Facebook has increasingly been willing to look the other way when members of, of Trump's world break the rules on Facebook. And that's not any mistake. The company has, um, you know, the Trump administration has leverage over Facebook. They're facing a potential regulation uh, and even worse potential for Trump to blow up and create another bad news cycle. But they are catering to that power and employees are quite concerned about what that means as we head into the November election. So, you know, I think, um, Sarah, um, the, uh, there's a lot of stuff in here, and it makes me just think about everything that we've kind of observed um, about politics and Facebook uh, going back to basically 2016, where obviously all the concerns were ended up being about sort of Russian interference and its uh, and its role on 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 manipulating the platform effectively, um, and that is a concern um, again. But it's actually it seems like the thrust of this might be in sort of the Facebook's response to that wasn't necessarily. Uh, to, to take on that stuff, um, and, and they've done, a, I think, a pretty amazing job of, uh, of at least recognizing the ability to spot some of that stuff, but there seems to have been sort of a rightward drift at Facebook, and, and that has been, um, you know, that's obviously the center of the story. Can you talk more about where those concerns are rooted in? Right, so after the Russian election interference, remember Russia was was inserting itself into... U.S. polarizing topics like immigration, like race, like like feminism, they were building groups uh, on on Facebook using people who were pretending to be Americans who weren't. And what Facebook concluded from that is that it wasn't 
the things that the fake people were saying, the problem was just that they were fake people. So Facebook really does not care if people are trying to manipulate others on Facebook and spreading um, sometimes very incendiary fake news. They don't want to take it down. They only want to get get their enforcement into gear if there are fake people behind it, if they're breaking other rules. And what that's done is it's created this environment where Trump can really test the limits of these policies. He's been spreading a lot of misinformation about how to vote, uh, telling people things um, about mail-in voting, saying that that would lead to fraud. Of course, it's not true. Um, he has been using Facebook essentially to uh, sow doubt in the potential results of the election. And Facebook has said, well, I know we said that we cared about voting misinformation, but we don't think that Trump is breaking our rules. And we don't want to take down anything from a politician. So simply, you know, I want to ask, Sarah, is Mark Zuckerberg courting the president? And and what's great about your story is you did some really inside reporting, talking to employees who have worked at the company and seen, you know, some of the policies that they have done and this, and kind of what they've been focusing on. But is Zuckerberg courting the president? Well, he's not a Trump Republican. What he is is interested in power and dominance for Facebook, and that requires the support of people in power. And that's not just in the U.S. We've seen this in many countries throughout the world. Facebook always helps out the government in charge, um, caters to their concerns, and in some cases, you know, gives them FaceTime with Zuckerberg, lets them break rules that they wouldn't let them break if they weren't powerful. And what employees are concerned about is that this is actually having this unbalanced effect on what Facebook users see and how they are informed about the election. One example that um, that we learned for this story is that there were a, a lot of changes to the newsfeed after the 2016 presidential election to try to reduce the amount of incendiary and untrustworthy news um, because that was one of the big problems. Mm. Well, Facebook tested the potential outcome of an algorithm change, and the policy team reviewed that and thought, well, this is, this is hurting the traffic for conservative outlets too much. We need to tweak this algorithm right. and, and have an equal effect on conservative liberal outlets before well, we roll it out to our users. So I just, I, that's an example. Yeah, listen, and there are so many examples. The reporting on this is just, you know, like you always do, Sarah, fantastic. And if anybody missed part of this interview, check it out because it'll be on our feed and we're going to feature it too in our weekend show as well. It is the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week. Sarah Fryer, thank you so much. And of course, our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. Check it out. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, for those of you who've been paying attention, we actually kicked off this entire festival with one of the co-founders. You might have heard of him, Matt Damon. Now we're going to turn to the folks who are doing some of the most important work in the world when it comes to water. We're talking about, of course, the CEO and co-founder of Water.org, Gary White, and the president of Water.org, Jennifer Schorsch. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. All right, thanks to be here. Good to be here, Jason. So, Gary, I want to start with you. You know, tell me about the organization 
at this moment because we are in a global pandemic. I don't need to remind anybody about that, but I do wonder how it has changed your work. That is the top headline every day, it feels like. Well, it, it has had a tremendous impact on our work. And what, what I see is it calls much more for us to pay attention to water and sanitation, particularly for the global community. One of the first things that we heard uh, when this pandemic struck is like, you should wash your hands vigorously and you should wash them often. And in the United States, and uh, we have that ability without a thought having uh, be able to do that. But when you think about people around the world, more than 2 billion people who don't have access to safely managed water and sanitation, that simple act is a huge hurdle every day. So we can see how the pandemic is exacerbated in those types of environments. And as we know, this pandemic doesn't know any national borders. And so it's easy to see how that can can spread from one poor person living, uh, you know, in a slum uh, in Mumbai to somebody in New York. And it is all interconnected. And I think the thing about water and sanitation, water in particular, as we'll see today, it's completely interconnected with climate. And when we talk about some of the world's most vulnerable populations and climate, what they're going to see is this lack of security. As we get more flooding and more drought, it forces people who are already living on the margins, who might have access, but tenuous access now to these services, to completely lose that and, and backslide. Well, Jennifer, let's get right to the heart of that because Gary teed it up for us beautifully. Let's talk about that intersection because I have to confess, as I started to really dig into this, I was blown away by the the connection and the urgency of this from a climate perspective that I don't think I fully appreciated. So help us understand because you guys have done some amazing recent work that really crystallizes, as I say, this intersection of climate and water crises. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, you, you struck upon a really important concept, which is the urgency of it. I mean, like climate change, I think people really might think of this as an issue of tomorrow, but the water crisis is an issue of today. Um, a third of the world's population lives in water-stressed areas right now. Uh, we talked about COVID. Three billion people cannot wash their hands at home in the midst of a pandemic. And every morning, uh, women and girls around the world wake up and collectively spend 200 million hours simply trying to provide for the um, the needs of their family uh, in water. And so it's, and, and on Gary mentioned sanitation, that's more than twice the issue of water. So it's an issue right now. And is it, it is an issue that has real human costs and real economic costs. And as climate progresses, the water crisis will only get worse. And so let's talk a little bit more about that and how it manifests Gary, because there are a number of different ways, some obvious, some not so obvious, where the changing climate is inextricably tied uh, to the water crisis. One of them sort of going the other way in terms of trying to get water to people is that it sometimes, just to put it very simply, isn't always good for the earth. Mm -hmm. Well, I think 
when we talk about water scarcity and how we allocate the water resources that we do have, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, uh, only about 10% of the water that we consume goes towards uh, human needs, if you will. So household level water and, and sanitation. And then when we especially look at those 2 billion people, they're, they're folks that aren't showing up, you know, uh, for water with you know, drinking it through a fire hose, they're coming with a straw, right? People living in poverty are certainly, by, if we get them access, they're certainly are not going to exacerbate this crisis. There's many ways that we can do that while still conserving uh, the, the water resources. And I think what when we see water and climate come together, we do see it in terms of adaptation. How are we going to ensure the resilience of the populations that are on the margins right now in the context of water access. And that's important. It's kind of the least among us who are going to be affected first. We know that as drought strikes and water scarcity hits, that we're gonna have people that need to migrate. We're gonna have climate refuge refugees because of their water supply. But on the other side, just to take it a little bit more in a different direction. It was interesting to hear Bill Gates talking about some of the, the, the carbon issues and like cement and things like that. I think one thing that people don't realize is how much carbon is embedded in water. So if we look at solving this crisis from a mitigation perspective for carbon and climate, that's important to, to realize as well. We don't realize, for instance, that 25% of all the electricity consumed in California goes towards sourcing and moving and treating and distributing water that comes into people's homes. We don't recognize that globally, we have utilities that lose half of all that water that's treated because of leaky pipes and poor infrastructure. If we could just save 20% of that, that's the equivalent between now and 2030, if we could save 20% of those losses, that would be like taking 211 million cars off the road for a year in the United States. So we uh, we need to get tuned into more how much this whole water supply system and infrastructure and the shortcomings in it cause us to, to use more carbon than we need to deliver the water that's so important. Jennifer, I, I wanna take it in a slightly different direction and, and stay a little bit domestic here because one of the things that we've talked a lot about in this current crisis is where people live, how they live, the disproportionate impact, as we've been talking about, of the pandemic. When we think about the climate, one of the things we know is that our rising sea levels are going to affect where we live. Water is going to play a detrimental role to some extent in that. How does your work sort of figure into that and how do you think about water in that context? Sure. Um, so if, if we think about the water issue, we, we really want to focus on the, the quality, or the quantity of it, how much is available for use, the quality of the water, and then the accessibility of the water. And as we mentioned, we are really looking at those who are disproportionately affected by this. It was interesting hearing Bill talk about vaccines because like many things, the impact of the water crisis is disproportionately borne on the shoulders of people living in poverty. And so we are focused on the access element of water and sanitation and what I like to call the humanity of water. Um, as Gary referenced, corporations, industrial and um, agricultural use is 90% of the freshwater supply. About two thirds of the freshwater um, supply is used for, it's estimated, the supply chain 
chain and the provisioning of products. So we have to have corporations participate in this and we have to address not only stewardship quality, health, and the quantity of water available, but also the access, the accessibility of it. So our work is singularly focused on ensuring that those living in poverty, the two billion people who live without every day, have access to safe water and sanitation. And that's what we bring to the table. The lens that we bring is different. We approach this through affordable finance. So it's really right. about removing the barriers that exist for those individuals living in poverty and doing it by creating a system, wrapping a system around them that starts with an affordable loan to allow them to hook up to the water system that runs right under their feet. They just don't have the savings to connect to that or to build a toilet in their home. So we focus on that individual living in poverty. We enable often her to get access to um, to a, a loan to get that water connection. And what we're seeing is that there is a market that is playing out. More than 6 million loans enabled, 30 million people now have access to water and sanitation. And they're doing it through um, saving their time and saving their resources. And that has created a commercial lending portfolio of $2.4 billion, which is put in the hands of people living on less than $6 a day. So Gary, talk about that a little bit more and, and the growth of that and how that finance piece is essentially enabled because this is right in the Bloomberg sweet spot, I have to say, in terms of our audience and sort of understanding the underpinnings financially. Yeah, and I, I think what's exciting about this is is that there is a solution. And, and in many ways, uh, this problem of helping people in poverty get access contains its own solution. And as Jennifer was mentioning, we work through getting access to microloans to people living in poverty. And just real quickly, how that how that works, uh, there was a woman I met recently in the Philippines, her name was Lena Riza, and she was paying a water vendor, someone who sold, you know, dubious quality water in her neighborhood, uh, you know, about $30 every month to bring water to her home. Uh, and what I'm sorry, she was paying about $60. And then so what we saw was the opportunity for her to connect to this utility, but she didn't have the upfront money to do that. So through our program, she was able to get a small loan and able to, to capture uh, those savings. So now she's paying about $10 a month for her water bill and for her loan combined. So she's able to save $50. And so every month that's money that's back in her pocket. So that's how this this system can work. And it is about trying to bring the global capital markets to bear on this. So we work with local microfinance institutions to, to bring that capital into the system so people like Lenariza can get those loans. And as this has evolved, we've realized that we can actually see new ways and looking at social impact investing, for instance, to drive more capital into the system so that these loans can be scaled up. And water.org uh, was actually able to create and stand up and spin off a new entity, Water Equity, that brings the capital markets to bear, giving investors uh, an attractive rate of return so that we can then scale up these, these small loans and then expand to micro enterprises that serve the poor as well as, as utilities. And that's what we can offer accredited investors who want to learn more. They can invest in this with that type of vehicle, 
but also we need that philanthropic capital that sets all this in motion to do those things that Jennifer was talking about to correct those market failures. And that's what we're trying to do, use this, these innovations to show that you know, people living in poverty are actually not necessarily a problem to be solved, but a market to be served. So I, I love that um, because I am engaging every day <laughs> with a whole lot of capitalists who are seeing increasingly, it feels like, Gary, this opportunity, this investment opportunity in also doing good. Was there an inflection point where this became possible, the Water Equity Fund? Was it because of the appetite growing or was it because the model didn't exist before? What, what was the key moment in getting that stood up? I think the, the key moment was when we were working with some of our local partners around the world and we asked them what's preventing them from scaling up these loan portfolios much more. And it was an answer of, you know, access to safe, or I'm sorry, access to affordable and consistent capital. And at the same time, you know, uh, you know, Matt, actually, Matt and I were in the Jeep uh, driving around India when we were talking to our partners about this. And that's where we kind of hatched this idea of bringing the capital markets in through social impact investing. So it's kind of a perfect storm, right? We saw this incredible demand and, you know, we see uh, about an $18 billion demand for these small loans among people living in poverty uh, that could serve about 800 million people. And we saw that demand bubbling from the bottom up in the form of our partner saying we need more capital to get out more loans for more water connections and more toilets. At the same time, we saw social impact investing really starting to come into its own. And so we were able to create water equity as really this the, the first asset manager that's focused exclusively on solving this crisis to be able to bring in those accredited investors match that with people at the household level to get the loans from that capital and provide that attractive rate of return to investors while still helping people get water. So Jennifer, let's talk a little bit more about the philanthropic side then, especially in this time of crisis where there are so many people in need, so many organizations. We talked about this at the top of the conversation. How are you seeing the, the philanthropic side, both from an individual and a corporate perspective? Yeah, I mean, the philanthropic environment right now is interesting. Um, what we see is that philanthropists are stepping up in a, in a way that has been unprecedented in some ways. What we're seeing is that a lot of those funds are going towards relief, immediate relief, um, and the important issues of racial justice. And so what, what we are seeing is that now more than ever, we need to accelerate progress against, against water and sanitation. It is the first and the second line defense against pandemic. And frankly, the philanthropic environment for water and sanitation is challenging. So what we are trying to do is, is help folks think about this as building global resilience, that we need to invest in water and sanitation. At water.org, we need people to come and visit, whether you can give $10 or a million dollars to donate to water.org to accelerate. COVID, we've identified more than 25 million projects that we want to accelerate to redouble our efforts in the light of COVID. But frankly, Jason, it is a challenging environment for us given that um, so much is going against immediate relief. And, and if I could just say one other thing about the stakeholders that need to participate in this issue. 
Um, as I referenced earlier, corporations and their use of water. We need corporations to step up. We are fortunate to work with um, dozens of corporations and corporate foundations in fulfilling their water and stewardship needs. And what we want to see and what we're starting to see through things like the Water Resilience Coalition is these corporations not only make elevating their ambitions, but accelerating their actions. And we want to partner with those corporations, we at water.org, and use their philanthropy and that of philanthropists catalytically to create this system that wraps around that woman living in poverty and creates a sustainable solution. Well, Gary, there's certainly, I mean, one of the things that I think is so appealing about this is you have a clarity of purpose, and both of you have, have talked about it, uh, so well, and and it is a it's so fundamental to to what we're what we're all striving for here. As we wrap up, I mean, what gives you in the in the uh, in the sense of maybe ending with some optimism? What does make you optimistic? What gives you a sense of hope at, at a time when man, we're looking for some. I think what gives me hope is that the power of the people that we're trying to help uh, get access to safe water and sanitation. I mean, they are the ones who understand the value in that, and they're the ones who are willing to invest in helping create that value for their family, whether that's their daughter now being able to go to school because she's not carrying water or because they're saving on medicine because they're not sick all the time. And that's what drives us. They're the center of this work. This is why the market can work because right now connecting people like that to the capital markets it's a broken system and that's why we exist with our philanthropic capital to kind of help correct that failure and you know we've been doing this for 30 years and we developed a lot of different insights into this into how we can do it and we can do more of it i think jennifer mentioned you know we have 25 million dollars worth of projects and initiatives that are ready and waiting to go so that we can scale this up further. And so to me, what we've done is like become this innovation engine in this market, helping people understand that it is there and then finding these different tools, whether it be philanthropy to scale this up and create new solutions, whether it be helping corporations pursue their ESG scores and drive those up because they are looking at their social license to operate with respect to water for these communities where we work or whether it's impact investing and looking to accredited investors to come in and deploy their capital in a way in a way that gets them that financial return that they need but also then serves those need needing water in particular foundations right now as we look towards foundations investing in mission related investments and these types of things we can deliver that type of impact we can solve this global water crisis. We can do it from the bottom up with the people who are impacted by it and from the top down with the people who can bring the capital. All right, well, a really interesting discussion. I learned a ton. I know that our audience did as well. As I said, this is a core issue for us as humans. It's a core issue as it relates to the environment, a core issue as it relates to, as we all figure out, where we go from here. My thanks to Gary White, the CEO and co-founder of water.org, and as well to Jennifer Shore. She is the president of water.org. They joined me from their respective locales, Kansas City and Seattle, respectively. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly.
on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's talk a little bit about economics with one of our favorite economists. He's the chief economist at LendingTree, Tendai Kapfizi. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Tendai, have you been? What's going on? Doing good, guys. How are you? Hi. We're doing all right. It's kind of a, a funky week, uh, as they all are. The 27th week, I think, working from home, although I'm in the studio. Carol's uh, at home. I'm guessing you're at home still. So what is this economy telling us right now? What data are you looking at? You have access through Lending Tree to, I feel like, a trove of data that many people don't. Um, yeah, we do have a lot of data. Today, though, I'm looking at the housing starts, which is a piece of data that the Census Bureau puts out. And uh, housing starts, they actually fell in August 5.1% uh, month over month. Uh, and the decline was driven by the multifamily housing, but single-family houses were actually up. Multifamily was down 25% month over month, a pretty big drop, which I think reflects changing uh, preferences amongst uh, home buyers and renters as well. So what does that tell you about kind of where we are in this cycle, this economic cycle? Because I think we know the hit was hard. We know initially there was a big bounce back. And then now we're just kind of, depending on the statistic you look at, trending water. Uh, yeah. Trending so water. Big bounce back. <laughs> trending yeah. water, too. I'm sorry, Jason. I think it's just your, your conversation. Water.org. I'm trending water. Tre water um, is trending. <laughs> water is trending. But treading water is what I meant to say. Yeah. So are we treading yeah, I, water tonight? Um, I, I think we, we certainly are in terms of the other sectors of the economy, right? The housing sector is actually a big positive upside surprise. And that's largely because of interest rates. But if you look at something like retail sales, which came out yesterday, uh, it shows that, you know, after kind of initial recovery of some of the decline, we're really moving sideways. So we are, you know, we're only making back uh, maybe half of the decline that we saw uh, from COVID. And yeah. you know, that leaves the economy in a very deep hole. What does that mean? What does it mean that 2021, like, you know, we, Jason and I kind of laugh a little bit, but we don't mean to laugh. Um, but about, you know, the lack of visibility from companies and CEOs when they report their earnings are like, yep, we don't have visibility still for 2021. But, you know, we know they have to make decisions. We know some of them are making decisions like letting go workers. So they must have some kind of visibility <laughs> about what the world looks like. Yeah, I'm actually very worried about 2021. Uh, because, you know, really the way to get back uh, the economy is to solve the health crisis. And it's not clear, right, that we're going to get uh, a vaccine, right? I used to work at Pfizer before my current job, and vaccines are not easy to make. Uh, you know, Pfizer and a lot of other companies are very, working very hard to try and figure this out. But it's not a given uh, that they will. And then from the economy perspective, what we've seen in 2020 is that a lot of companies have made pledges, right, to their employees that we're not doing COVID layoffs. A lot of big companies have done this. I think in 2021, when these pledges end, we're going to have another round of job losses if yeah. the economy hasn't truly come back. And that's a big concern, I think, for next year. And so when you listen to what Jay Powell said yesterday, Tendai, you look at the publicly available data, you look at your data that you guys are able to get through lending tree is there 
what what's the what's the signal in the noise i guess i mean what is the thing that we need to be focused on even in the next 30 to 60 days as we think about say the election uh everything is noise except if they come up with some vaccine or you know some way to mitigate uh the health risk uh everything else i think is is noise and you can't really solve for anything uh without solving for the health problem what about though a big you know aid package from right. government does that do it at um, least for a, while? It for a while yeah yeah it does it for a while right we saw that earlier this year uh really what you know kind of sustained or prevented uh the decline from being greater was this huge stimulus package uh which the idea was to you know build a bridge to the other side when hopefully we would have had uh some solutions to the health crisis uh, unfortunately we didn't really build that bridge we didn't really solve for the health issue. So again, uh, you know, you can do all kinds of things, you know, Powell can do all kinds of things. uh, But really, you have to solve the root problem in order for any of these other actions to have their maximum impact. All right, Tendai Kipfize, thank you so much, Chief Economist for Lending Tree, joining us on the phone from New York City. And that's interesting to hear him say basically nothing matters except a vaccine. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It It is time for the drive to the close. We're both so excited to welcome back Cole Smead, President and Portfolio Manager of Smead Capital Management. Joining us on the phone from Phoenix, Arizona. Cole, how are you? How are things out in Arizona? Uh, Things are actually pretty normal out here. It's... it's, uh, it's a pretty strange world where people go to lunch and do business meetings and uh, you go out to dinner in the evening and uh, you live life pretty normally, which is, is kind of a shock to right now. So, yeah. Not yeah. where it was, that's for sure. Yeah, no question. And so it's, I, on that side, it's, I, we couldn't feel more blessed. Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty mm. incredible because we feel. I, I think I can speak for a lot of people here in the tri-state area where, still very much on lockdown. I mean, I'm looking even across our barely occupied office and seeing you know the folks who are moving around wearing masks and you know moving around New York City a little bit uh, over the past few weeks. Not a lot of. Um, not a lot of people uh, out and about still. It's getting better, um, but it is it is sort of interesting. And, you know, we talked with an economist earlier, Cole, who was basically saying that from an economic perspective, nothing is close to normal until there's a vaccine. I, I think we can we, we could dissect that a little bit. But I would ask you from a markets perspective, how does an investor look at sort of this underlying pandemic and, and how to think about it as you look at a portfolio? Well, that's a great question. And I will, uh, I will cheat and copy and paste straight from Sir John Templeton. Uh, he would say that people often ask me, uh, w- you know, what looks the best? And he said, that's not the right question to ask. You, could, you should be asking where things look the worst. And that's what he was interested in as an investor. So to your point, for the economists to say that, I love that because obviously they're great predictors of everything and nothing at the same time. 
So, so that is the picture that ha- people have in their mind right now, that nothing will be normal until a vaccine, okay? which means that security prices are completely misallocated up until then or until the market gets a better sense of then. Um, you know, people always talk about the, the, the wisdom of the crowds. Markets tend to sniff out things better. By the time the market sniff, sniffs out the change that the economist was referring to, a lot of the security opportunities could be gone in things like oil, malls, et cetera, that are incredibly depressed at this point. So it's the value guy saying, hey, folks, <laughs> there's some great deals out there, correct? Because you know, Dave, yeah. Dave Wilson, who does our chart of the day earlier, came on specifically looking at value stocks. And, you know, those relatively cheap names are more out of favor with investors in developed markets than they have been in almost four decades. But, yeah. you know, having said that, Cole, to be fair, they can get even cheaper from here. Oh, they can. But I, I, my gut instinct says that two weeks ago this thing ended just so you guys are aware, okay? And I'm just telling you, out of watching and experience, um, there was a half a trillion dollars being wagered on uh, options tied to small retail traders the four weeks that ended last week. And just to give you guys a sense, that was, that was five times as large as what we saw in the late 1990s. So you can see all the elements of a speculative euphoria. You know, John Kenneth Galbraith uh, probably did the best writing on that subject matter. And what I love about it is I'm 36. For my generation, this is really the first time that people have tried to figure out ways to take speculative risk in the stock market. They've done it to the highest degree of speculative risk. And like Rich Bernstein, the the famous former Merrill strategist, would say, they're not just going to end up with lower returns. They will actually be poorer coming out of this, which is most people's experience in common stock investing. They never have success they wake up poor, and these episodes is what causes that to happen. Where do you think investors are making mistakes specifically? Uh, well, it's, well, just as a picture, uh, your colleague, John Authors, wrote mm-hmm. a great piece on Monday, and he was comparing, I think the, it was a FTSE 100 to Apple, okay? And he noted that Apple had passed up the, the market cap size of the FTSE 100. Well, what's interesting about it, he, he commented on, let's just say the CapEx. He pointed out the FTSE does $108 billion of CapEx versus $8 billion of CapEx in Apple, Okay. If you actually take the R&D and add that back to those numbers and say, okay, let's just say CapEx and R&D is going to be something that kind of decides how sustainable a business model is and profitability, well, the FTSE is doing about five-fold of CapEx R&D relative to Apple. So all things equal, you'd say, well, probably the company that's reinvesting the most would be able to sustain the best. But then if you add security prices into that, you'll find that, well, that's not really true. Hmm. Right? One is doing one-fifth the other and has the same market cap. So that just highlights how screwed up the allocation of money is right now. Now, does that mean that Apple hasn't had a lot of success and isn't a great business? No, that's not what it says. It just means the capitalization of that is ruining the future returns for investors. Mm. And we've done, done, uh, I think in the piece we'd share with you guys, we've done some work looking at the 10 biggest market caps since 1980 each decade. And, you know, IBM had the same thing in 1980. It was still the biggest company in 1990. What did it do? It underperformed the market for 10 years to still yeah. stay the biggest company. That's the but risk. But would you say plays. IBM, would you really put IBM and Facebook uh, in the same category? Uh, they called it Big Blue for a reason. It was a small G god in the stock market. And yeah. by the way, GE had the same phenomena yeah. at 1.2. So I say that because, um, it, it, once again, it's not the question of whether you know, these businesses, I'll, I'll give you an example. I think the biggest problem in the market is Microsoft. Not because it isn't a great business, and it's not a great—not that it's not a great American company. 
it's that that seems so safe to say, oh, look at these two great businesses in office and the operating system and then what hosting could be. They feel so safe. And yet, if people wake up finding out that 40 times earnings will never fulfill their wildest dreams and they can actually lose money with the best businesses in the world, I, that will destroy common stock trust. Just so you yeah. guys know. And that's why people will do what they do. They use survivorship bias. They look at these things and say, oh, they're the survivors. They performance chase. They wake up two years later getting punished. And that is why I'll have a job in 10 or 20 years. Hmm. There you go. And you are a young man, as you uh, pointed out. I love confidence. Uh, That's great. Cole, love catching up with you. Really great. Cole Smead, of course, the president portfolio manager at Smead Capital Management, joining us on the phone from apparently pretty normal Phoenix, Arizona. Good to hear uh, that things are going well out there. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.